Let's, uh, let me just take an opportunity to pray over you just a moment here. Bow with me. Father, thank you for, once again, just giving us an opportunity to come together, to encourage one another, God, to uh, lift each other up as we praise your name. God, to identify uh, here this morning those that are having a tough time, uh, those that need uh, to be encouraged and lifted up. God, those that need to be spurred on as we continue to run a race, God. Help us to not grow weary of the fight and the struggle that is this life. God, help us to be sensitive to your spirit and to one another. God, help us to wake up each morning, whether it's a Sunday or a Monday, and die to ourselves and pick up our cross and follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. A lot of things going on in the life of our church, probably more than uh, we can spell out in a need to know. Are we trying to get them all into different documents or on our website or on social media so that you can see them. Uh, today, after service, we're trying yet another new thing. We're doing this thing called Res Connect that Pastor Mark's going to walk you through, where we open up a whole section of the breezeway, and the elders and pastors uh, just hang out there for 15 or 20 minutes after each service just to give you more opportunities to come by and say hi and give us a hard time. Can do. There we go. See? Already got a taker. <clears throat> Coming up on Saturday, we have this really... Uh, a really cool opportunity to do a rally for our church called All Hands. You'll see that. Uh, I think that announcement came out this last week. So we're going to be getting together and talking about what's coming, uh, talking a little bit about vision, and just getting an opportunity to encourage you because I think we've all been able to acknowledge at this point that it's been a struggle. We've got a work day coming up in two weeks. We've got, you just heard, we've got an adult Bible study starting on Sunday nights in two weeks with carpooling available. We've got a business meeting. We've got some new elder candidates that are going up in that business meeting for confirmation. There is a lot of things going on in the life of our church. So uh, if you have questions, find an elder, find a pastor, find a staff member and ask, and we'll do our best to explain uh, everything that we think you need to know about that's going on right now. We're starting a series that we're going to be in uh, for five weeks in Ephesians, but in actuality, we're going to, over the course of the next probably 14 months, uh, slowly make our way through the book of Ephesians. Now, it's going to take us probably till the end of 2022, because we're going to take some breaks here and there, but uh, there's going to be some parts of Ephesians that we go really, really slowly through, and there's going to be some parts that we get to speed up on a little bit, and for the next five weeks, we're actually only going to make it through 14 verses. That's right, very slowly. Now, let me talk about why we're going to go through the book of Ephesians uh, and why we're going to spend so much time in it over the course of the next 14 months. First of all, the book of Ephesians and really the church in Ephesus is the most documented first century church that we have record of. We have more information about that church than we have about any of the other first century churches. We know all about the formation of the church. We know about the early years of the church. We know about some of the pastoral ministry in the church. A lot of the different books of the New Testament actually all refer back to the church in Ephesus. And it is a book on unity. It's a book on how to do church. In fact, uh, while it's going to talk about what the church is and why the church is important and how the church needs to function, it actually is going to start with the same question that you and I need to start with when it comes to our faith in Jesus Christ and when it comes to doing church, and that is, who am I now? 
Once I've met Jesus, who am I now? And then what are the implications of who I am now on life going forward? There are a lot of uh, rich things that we're going to learn over the course of the next 14 months in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians, as a book, is seen as one of the preeminent writings that Paul ever had. In fact, here's a couple quotes from different theologians. One theologian says, it is the crown and climax of Pauline theology. Another theologian says, it is the sublimest communication ever known to man. How's that for a review? And another says, it is the divinest composition of man. Kent Hughes says this about Ephesians. Ephesians, carefully, reverentially, prayerfully considered, will change our lives. It is not so much a question of what we will do with the epistle, but what it will do with us. It is a message of unity a message for the church, and a message for the fragmented, war-torn world. This book is split into three parts. The first three chapters would be described as the wealth. We're going to talk about our identity in Christ. And then chapters four and five really will look at the walk, pursuing Jesus. And then chapter six, we'll look at the warfare, the warfare. Swindoll says this, Ephesians, about Ephesians, this letter skips right through the hors d'oeuvres of the spiritual banquet and jumps straight into the main course. Within a few verses, we discover that this is no dainty lunch for the grazer, but a veritable feast of theological truth served up by a master chef. So we're going to cover 14 verses over five weeks very, very slowly because what we're going to find in the first 14 verses of Ephesians is the foundation of our So if you'll open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, today we're going to cover verses 1 through 3. 1 through 3. And thankfully, they didn't put a timer up for me today, which means they wanted me to preach as long as the Spirit wanted. All right, you guys are in. Buckle up. I'm just going to read this all, and then we're going to go through this. Uh, Three verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. All right, in that opening, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, this is the same greeting that the Apostle Paul will use in First and Second Corinthians and in Colossians and in Second Timothy. There is very little doubt by any theologian or historian that this letter was written by the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, if you're not familiar with him, is the perfect example of a lot of things that you and I represent in the Christian faith and before we met Jesus. He was, as we were, irredeemable. Man, he was a mess, and I can relate to that. The Apostle Paul is a perfect example of what happens when the gospel pierces a religious heart. You see, the Apostle Paul was very religious before he met Jesus. Think about that. Many people think, oh, I met Jesus, now I become religious. No, the Apostle Paul was exceptionally religious, and then he met Jesus, and all of that changed. The Apostle Paul is the perfect example of the the difference between living in your own competencies and spirit-led living. Because the Apostle Paul was a very competent religious man before he met Jesus. The Apostle Paul is a perfect example of someone who had to spend quite a few years growing 
before he got to go on mission. We often look at the Apostle Paul, we think about how he met Christ and then he just became this great apostle, but there's a gap after he met Jesus where he was discipled, where he learned, where he was faithful, where, where he began to be changed and transformed by God before he was ever sent out on mission. The interesting thing about the Bible that we oftentimes miss is that the greatest testimony to the truth of the Bible is the changed lives that it produces. When people ask you about the Bible, when they talk about whether or not they believe the Bible, when, when, when there is a, a claim that maybe the Bible is false, the greatest testimony that you'll ever give someone about the authenticity of the Bible is your changed life. Because there are heaps of historical evidence about the authenticity of the Bible, but nothing speaks as powerfully and as real as sitting across the table from someone and you saying, let me tell you what it did for me. When the Apostle Paul points to the evidence around the truth of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, he actually says, if you don't believe me, let me start to name off people that saw the resurrection. Why? Because ultimately what we see in Scripture over and over again is the power of our personal testimony. When we read the Gospels, we're reading witnesses to Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. When we read the book of James, we're reading the same half-brother who doubted Jesus' divinity in John 7, and yet would die a martyr, claiming Jesus was Lord. And the greatest evidence I will ever present to another person about the power of the gospel is my own transformed life. The same is true for you. We are God's evidence because we are his workmanship. So we are saints. He addresses the saints in Ephesus, in the same way he would address the saints in Bakersfield, to the saints. James Boyce, the great expositor, said, every Christian is a saint, and every saint is a Christian. Moreover, every true Christian is, in some sense, separated from the world. It does not mean that we are taken out of the world. That is not the way God operates. But it does mean that we're removed from it in the sense of not really belonging to the world any longer. If we are truly Christ's, we have in your nature a new set of loyalties and a new agenda. So when you open up the book of Ephesians, when you open up and before you even start the letter, simply Paul stating who he is has this backstory that says, hey, there's this testimony that took a very religious, very hard-hearted, very far from God person and redeemed me. And then immediately he says to the saints so that you know before you start reading the letter that your identity, if you're in Christ, is changed. That our agenda now is different. That our loyalties now are different. That whom we might have served before we met Jesus is not the same any longer. And each of these things in the intro to this letter, in the beginning of this letter, as Paul gets started, is his attempt to remind you you are not the same person that you were. So you can't think the same way. You can't live the same way. The logic doesn't work any longer. Every day when we wake up, one of the first things that you and I need to remind ourselves of when we get up in the morning is our identity as redeemed children of God. We are saints. Saints look at the world differently. We look at our possessions differently. We look at our time differently. We look at our talents differently. 
We look at the things that God's given us to steward because we are saints. They are not ours. We don't live with closed fists wrapped tightly around the things that we get. We live open-handed, allowing God to remove whatever he wants to use the things that he's already given us for his use and to place more things in our hands if he decides to. We're saints. Saints means holy ones. Literally, the meaning of saints is to be set apart and chosen for his work. To the saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. How many times, because this happens in a number of the books in the New Testament, have you read Paul say, grace to you and peace, grace and peace, grace and peace? Somebody, you guys have read this before? Four of you. You guys are far more biblically literate than you're letting on right now. I feel deceived. Grace and peace, grace and peace, grace and peace. You see this in many of his letters. I just want to peel this back and, and walk through what that means because there's some, there's some turn of a phrase that Paul's using that we, we can't see because we're not reading this in Greek. He's smashing together actually two terms. He's smashing together uh, a Hebrew term for peace, which is shalom, and the Greek word for grace, which is charis. So he's taking two languages and he's putting them together in this greeting. He's, he's taking a, two cultures, this, this Hebrew culture that saw themselves as the chosen people and everyone that was not part of this chosen people was a Gentile, was an outsider, was unworthy, could not be redeemed, only God's chosen people could. And he's, he's combining that tradition that they would have in their greeting with this tradition of a Greek culture that had been very hedonistic and, it's, and, and polyistic and served many gods, but now they've been redeemed because of the mystery of Christ coming and redeeming them. And he's, he's taking these two terms and he's smashing them together in a single sentence to try to communicate to these churches that everything has changed because of Christ, that who was on the outside is now on the inside, that who you might have overlooked before you can no longer overlook because of the blood of Christ. That there are no ins and outs. There's only in Christ and not in Christ. He's taking two cultures that frankly didn't like each other and looked down on one another and didn't want to be part of one another. In fact, we'll see even after the formation of the church, we'll still struggle to actually love one another and do life together and even eat together. And he's smashing them together in, in, in this phrase over and over again in his letters to try to communicate to you and I that that's not an acceptable way to live any longer. It's a good thing the Bible never had any stories about churches merging, right? <clears throat> How about entire cultures having to merge into a space and figure out life together? You ever wonder why Paul had to constantly tell churches to be united? Why he had to constantly tell them to bear with one another? Where he had to constantly tell them to serve, you're not here to be served? That you're part of a body that can't function properly without one another? So you can't look down on somebody that's an organ in the body that you need? You ever wonder why the reminders had to be so con uh, constant? Probably because they didn't want to do it. They wanted to fight. They wanted their own way. They didn't want to consider each other. 
the beauty of the church, and we're going to see this all throughout the book of Ephesians, the beauty of the church, Christ's bride, as it will be described, is that it was intended to show the miracle of the gospel by uniting people that the world said it was impossible to unite. The world would have said in the New Testament, in, in the first century world, the world would have said it is absolutely impossible for these groups of people to do life together, to love one another, to sacrifice for each other, to willingly give up of their time and their resources and their money and their affections for one another because they do not like one another. And yet when they did it, people were perplexed, they were amazed, and ultimately they were drawn and attracted to it. Because what would have the power to bring this diverse of a group of people that don't like each other and have them die for one another? What could do that? What power could do that? Not that you and I could relate to this. Trying desperately to unite teenagers and young families and older families and mature saints and single blended services in which we honor all of those generations with our music and our preaching, and our love for one another. If only we could relate to how impossible the world says that is, how hard it is, how incredibly we need the Holy Spirit to change us, to give away our rights and our consideration for the furtherance of the gospel. It was impossible in the first century to do this. And trust me, I have the emails from people that tell me it is impossible to do it right now that this type of unity isn't worth it. It's too hard, it's too much of a struggle that we're tired of fighting. Church, I wanna remind you, it is worth it. Unity is worth it. You are worth it. Your lost neighbor is worth it. Your lost grandchild is worth it. Your lost coworker, your lost friend, your lost spouse, they're worth it. It's worth the fight. It's worth the struggle. It's worth it. Additionally, the, the actual phrase that Paul is, is, is turning here was an old Hebrew phrase in which you would say shalom and then you'd say chari, which actually meant rejoice. So what he's doing is he's making a little play on words. He's taking a Hebrew word and he's replacing it with charis, which is a Greek word, and he's flipping it. And he's basically saying grace, then peace, instead of the way that it would have been said in Hebrew. And what he's basically saying is this, First, you get grace because of Christ, and then because you have Christ, you get peace. Who knew all of that was in one little greeting, right? And then starting in verse 3, what Paul's going to do is he's going to give us the longest sentence that we found historically in ancient Greek. It goes from verse 3 all the way through verse 14. It's one run-on sentence. So we've broken that up in your Bible so that it's easy to reference. But in reality, from verse 3 to the end of verse 14 is one sentence with no punctuation. There's English teachers just turning over in their graves right now. And it, it's actually done in this uh, ancient form of wor Hebrew worship called a baraka, which is a blessing song in which you're actually almost sing-songing a blessing to God in the midst of what are deep theological truths about the nature of God and what he's done for us. And so, so this big run-on sentence, we, the closest thing I could find to kind of give you an analogy to what this would have been like in Hebrew or in Greek back in the day is a doxological anthem that we've been singing in churches for about 30, 40 years now. Have you ever heard this? 
Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, Holy Ghost. You guys heard that? You're singing these truths about God to remind ourselves about God, except he's going to do it for 11 verses. And in those 11 verses, what Paul's going to do is he's going to give us 10 reasons that you and I should praise God. And that's how he's going to start the letter. A call for unity, a call for identity, and why 10 reasons why you and I should be praising God. And we're going to cover one of those today, and it's in verse 3, and it's this idea of spiritual blessings, this idea of spiritual blessings. It's going to say this in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. John Stott would say this, to be in Christ is to be personally and vitally united to Christ as branches are to the vine and members to the body and thereby also to Christ's people. It means you and I to one another. For it is impossible to be part of the body without me related to being related to both the head and the members. According to the New Testament and especially Paul, to be a Christian is in essence to be in Christ, one with him and with his people. When we see this term in Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, we're going to see in Christ repeated three or four times through this baraka, over and over again, this reminder that all of this only happens in Christ. Now, I, I want to explain the in Christ because there are two parts to this, but, but one of them is this idea of being saved, being a Christian in Christ, and only through Christ does any of these things happen. And the in Christ is, it, it happens for us Suddenly. Now, what I mean by suddenly is when, when you're saved, that may have, it may have taken a long time for God to woo you and, 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 and attract you and draw you to him. But there's a point for every one of us that is in Christ where we gave our life to Jesus. We, we, we handed over the, the steering wheel. We, we handed over the control of our life to Jesus. And, and that happened at some point, and it was, it, was, it, was a, it was a specific thing. It wasn't like, today I did, but, but, but tomorrow I won't. It happened. It, it's like getting married. You're either married or you're not, amen? You're not kind of married. That, that doesn't mean you can't act poorly while married. But, it, but there's a legal sense to this. In, in, in every culture, historically, there, when you get married, you are married. There's a point. There's a point of division. And, and for believers, for you and I, there is a moment, there's a point in our lives where we went from not in Christ to in Christ, and it changed everything. It changed everything because in Every culture we've ever been in, there, there are implications to that legal change of status, amen? 
There was not only a change of status relationally for you, there, was a, there are legal implications when you get married. And when we are in Christ, there is a specific series of legal changes. And this 14 verses is actually going to walk us through a number of those and talk about why they're so significant. But what does it mean to be in Christ? You see, Paul will spend a great deal of time in a couple of his letters talking about some of the implications of being in Christ. One of those is that we went from being bound by the law, the law of sin and death, to being, because of Christ, being ruled and now following the law of Christ. What does that mean? What does it mean to follow the law of Christ? How could the law of sin and death be conquered and replaced by the law of Christ? And how do you and I understand what the law of Christ even is? That you can no longer live your life simply by having a series of checkboxes like the Ten Commandments and checking them off and feeling justified and being able to go about our day. That that's not the standard any longer because, by the way, that didn't work anyways. It, it bred self-righteousness in us. And instead, this idea that to live our lives is not about following a religious rule or a series of checkboxes, but it's rather about this idea of a, a branch being connected to a vine and growing into it and, and pulling all good things, everything that would, would give life and produce fruit will end up coming from how well rooted we are in the vine. And our life will turn from one and think about this, I'm talking about before you knew Jesus, our life will turn from, from one of moralism. Because even before you knew Jesus, you thought you were a good person. Even if you were a bad person, you thought you had reasons why you got there and it was probably going to be all right. But when you meet Jesus, it's no longer about whether or not you think you're sufficient enough to check enough boxes to maybe be okay. In fact, in actuality, there's this realization that I absolutely am not okay without Jesus. I'm not, I'm not going to be able to check the boxes. And really, I was lying about most of the boxes in the first place. It's about growing into the vine. It's, it's about living a life where I'm desperate to just follow after Jesus and I want to live a life that, that just wants to reach out and touch the, the hem of his garment because I know that in him life flows and if I could just close enough to him, if I could just chase after him, if I get more of him, then I would feel the contentment and the peace that comes with Christ. And there's no formula to get there other than just chasing after him. Listen to the way it's put in John 15, 5 through 11. I am the vine, this is Jesus speaking, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do how much? Nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. That's life without being desperate for Jesus. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. If you know Jesus, you will bear fruit. Not maybe, 
As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus is attempting to teach his disciples the same thing that you and I have to learn about being in Christ, and that is this, that to be in Christ, to deepen in our relationship with him, to stir our affection up for Jesus is not a religious process because the ultimate if you look at what Jesus is saying at the end of this, this passage is that as you and I abide in Jesus, as we will press into Jesus, the natural outflowing of that is that we will obey him. It's just natural. The more you press into a relationship with Jesus, the more you will produce fruit. You will produce spiritual fruit. You turn to Galatians 5, 21 and 22, right? And you look at all these things that none of you and I can do without, apart from Christ. How many of you on your own are just exceptionally gentle? Not me. How many of you, without the power of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit in you, are exceptionally humble? If you raise your hand, you already fail. I, too, am exceptionally humble. How many of us are just known for our meekness apart from Christ? Our patience, our long-suffering, our bearing with one another. There's not one of these things, these, these spiritual fruits that Jesus is talking about that you or I could just concentrate on really hard and do. No moralism or willpower actually turns you into this. If you take a branch and you cut it off from the vine and you put it on the ground, you can water it all you want. You can speak gently to it. You can have a great intentions for that dead branch. It's still dead. Amen? Amen? Everything about the Christian life, listen to church, everything about the Christian life is figuring out what it's going to take to stir up my affection for Jesus, to become more desperate for Jesus on a daily basis so that I will press into him so that he can do the work in me. Because apart from him, we can do nothing. We, now, we lose sight of that, right? Because we're, we're, creature, we're habitual creatures who like habits because when we have habits, we get efficient with things, right? If I get up and, I just, and I'm efficient with the things that I need to get done and I have a little habit, I have a check. Who likes checklists? Because I love checklists. There are checklists everywhere. I have just random notepads that I, I, I run into and they still have checklists on them. And I love, the, I love to check off the boxes as well. That's a very satisfying feeling for me when the last checkbox is checked off. What Jesus is trying to say is there's, there's no formula where you get to predict what it looks like to chase after me other than getting up every day, dying to yourself, picking up your cross, and chasing back after Jesus. In Christ, you and I have received every Heaven, every spiritual blessing. <clears throat> I don't have the words, I don't have the capacity to communicate every 
spiritual blessing. Paul didn't either. He doesn't even try. He gives you like five in the, in the next nine verses, but there's not a way, there's not a way for us to even comprehend the depth, the breadth of every spiritual blessing that has been bestowed upon you and I because of Jesus Christ. It is incomprehensible. We get glimpses of it and it changes us. We get, we get little flashes of it and it is transformative to you and I. And I don't believe that until we see glory, we're really gonna actually have an acute understanding of how magnificent every spiritual blessing really is, what that term means. You and I, at the moment of salvation, received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That was an immediate thing. And yet, even though every spiritual blessing has been bestowed upon us immediately at the point of salvation, there's still this, there's still this process of trying to learn how to live like that. Let me see if I give you an example. Um, the marriage analogy we were talking about that, that, that you're married or not. So you get married. In just about every culture, when you get married, if you uh, married someone and they were affluent or they were very wealthy or they were very rich and, and, and they had earned all of those things on their own before they married you, when they marry you legally and you become one in that union, you have now in every culture some sort of right to all of that, those things that they earned without you. That's crazy, right? And yet that's precisely what happens in Christ. Jesus did all of the work. Jesus was the, the spiritual blessing equivalent of like Elon Musk, right? Like billion trillionaire. Jesus has all of this righteousness and all of this blessing and all of this goodness and all this spiritual fruit and then through no work or effort of our own, he brings us in and makes us his own and bestows upon us the right to all of these things even though it is clear we did not deserve it. We, we, in our culture, we look at that 25-year-old uh, who, who marries like the rich 65-year-old and we sneer at it. And yet, you and I, we didn't earn any of that. We didn't earn any of what God did for us. We simply, by grace, received it all. Every bit of it. Now, the craziest part of the Christian life is that we got it all at once and now we have to figure out how to live like we're rich. You ever heard of new money? No one's ever heard of new money? There's old money and there's new money. You, you, you guys have heard of new money, right? New money's when you don't, you've been poor. You ain't been poor, you've been po. You've been po. Your whole life and you win the lotto. And then you start doing really dumb stuff like souping up a tractor and racing it around because you don't even know what to do with all this money. So you're just spending it on dumb stuff. You bought like a lifetime supply of cheese whiz and put it in a closet for no reason at all because you just had a bunch of money. 
You guys know what I'm saying, new money, right? Someone say yes. yes. Thank you. All right. The problem is when, 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 when Jesus saves us and bestows upon us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, you and I don't know how to live like that because we ain't ever had any money. We still think like we're poor. We still think like we're sinners. We still think like people of this earth, but Jesus has saved us. And, and, and the Christian life is one where we learn how to actually live like the wealth that our heavenly father has produced by chasing after Jesus and doing what he does. Cause that's probably going to work out better than what we're doing. And over time, the spirit, as he works on us, changes us and, 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 and transforms us to actually know how to live like the wealth that has been provided by Christ. And when you find yourself in sin, in the Christian life, what you're generally going to find is that you had gone back to thinking like you did before you knew Jesus, resting on your logic, resting on your reason, resting on your own ability to manipulate a situation or control something or do something in your talents. And, and that is actually the mistake that we're making is we're still living like we're poor. We've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You're rich. You're rich in grace and in mercy and in kindness and in love. You've been redeemed he, he took you out of the mud and he cleaned you up and he put the best robes and he put the rings on your finger and he slayed the fatted calf and he put it all before you. You're not poor. Don't live like you're poor. This Paul saying, do you understand who you are? You have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Stop living like you're poor. Stop looking down at your circumstances like you're poor. Stop looking at the struggle and thinking, well, it's because I'm poor. No, you're rich. And someday you're going to be in glory at the right hand, seated with Jesus next to the Father, above all things at the reconciliation and restoration of heaven and earth together. You're rich. Live like you're rich. Every spiritual blessing, every good gift, every redeemable thing, every real cause for hope, joy, peace, love, and compassion in your life comes from God. Anything that does not is folly. It's fool's gold. And God holds nothing back from you and I that is good. The Bible would tell us if you lack something, you need to merely ask for it. Now, I know what you're thinking right now. You're thinking, oh, I'm just going to ask for a million dollars. I've thought that too. Maybe a couple million. Okay. <clears throat> But you remember that God is your father and your God. He does not give you, in fact, he actually says this. He won't give you a snake. He won't give you poison. He isn't in the habit of gifting you the very idols you will worship instead of him. If you have idolatry in your heart for something, the spirit is usually going to be working in you long before he'll ever give you that gift because you know, he knows you'll abuse it. So why don't you have that kid? Why don't you have that job you want? Why don't you have that recognition that you really seek or that boat or that RV or that retirement? Or that? Oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, it's because our desire for it is not holy enough yet. 
and it will harm us. It will hurt us. And God is not in the habit of giving poison and snakes to his children. God in his grace does not allow his children to chase down destruction from our desire because we're his children. That's actually exactly how he describes the lost world, those that aren't in him. If you go to Romans 1, 18 through 31, what you'll see is that Jesus gives the world up to their own desires. But for you and I, those that are in Christ, he actually holds and waits and actually guards us from our own desires until he's wrought that change in us. God's blessings are intended to increase your holiness, not diminish it. God's blessings are intended to increase your holiness, not diminish it. God is not going to deliver you something specifically so you can destroy yourself with it because he loves you too much. Every spiritual blessing from the heavenly places. The Bible says that we were raised with Christ and we were seated with him in the heavenly places. So we are partakers of heavenly things because we now have this elevated position temporarily here on earth, but already seated and represented in heaven. In fact, in Philippians 3, 20 and 21, it'll say it this way, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We don't know exactly what heaven will be like. We can't know the full extent of every blessing that's been bestowed on us. We can't even understand the full breadth of what is the goodness of God. But here's what we know, church. To be in Christ is a certainty. It is a one-time, immediate thing. You are either in Christ or you are not. And when you are in Christ, you have been gifted with every spiritual blessing imaginable. But you got to learn how not to live poor, how to live rich, how to be a partaker of the blessings of God. So here's what I would ask you today. Number one, just this. Am I in Christ? Do I definitively know that I have put my faith in Jesus Christ God, it may have been pulling at you and wooing at you and attracting you and romancing you for a long time, but there is a point for every man or woman where you will make a decision to either accept that grace, put your faith in Christ, or to reject that grace and keep your faith in yourself. Do you know him? Are you in him? Because if not, you need to make that decision. Everything rests on it. Putting your faith in Christ is the start of an actual real life and not walking around in a dead corpse. For those of you that are in Christ, do you live like you're rich? 
Do you and I live like we've been given every spiritual blessing from the heavenly places? Do you walk in this new identity in Christ, pressing into him? Or have you allowed yourself to be deceived into thinking in your old frame of mind, living like you were poor again, living like you're not connected to the vine? A Christian life is a wild life, one that will have struggles that will not end. I heard someone recently say, I'm just tired of the struggle. In this life, you will have trouble. The Christian life here on earth is one of deep struggles and great contentment when we are in Christ. Are you living like you're rich? What in your life today is simply a byproduct of an old way of life and an old way of thinking and has nothing to do about being seated with the king. I'm going to pray for us. Our, uh, our elders and a couple of our pastors are going to be here to talk to you. If you just want to pray with somebody, if you've been uh, processing in this season, uh, some of the things that have been going on, if you need care, someone to talk to, we'll be up here. Let me pray for us. Father God, I pray for those here, those online, those that uh, will receive this message, God, that are not in Christ, God, that have not put their faith in your son and his work on the cross. God, we pray for their souls, that they would be awakened, God, and that they would move forward in a decision to put all of their faith and trust in you. God, we desire to see that happen. Your word says that There is an absolute party of an infinite number of angels every time a sinner comes to you. We desire to see that. And God, we we desire to be in you, God, to be transformed and changed, to live like the people you've made us and redeemed us to be, to live like we're rich and not like we're poor. God, we desire to be a unified church of people that come from all sorts of generations and backgrounds and love one another, that we are a miracle that the outside world gets to see and wonder what is powerful enough to make that happen, God, that we would be a testimony to your son's blood. God, we desire to see you move and impact our neighbors, our community, our world around us, God, it feels like it gets darker every day around us, that the culture gets darker and worse, God, and we desire to be a light. God, help us to hold on to the hope of your son and to encourage one another. In Jesus' name, amen.